she tells this story about going into the bathroom before doing a big presentation and standing with her hands on her hips in this sort of power position. Before a big presentation, I do actually spend quite a lot of time in the bathroom, but it's not doing it. I should, I should incorporate a power stance into that routine. I think that might help. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Saren Jayamana, and you're listening to the Life Coach Podcast. What makes me qualified to be a life coach? Absolutely nothing, which is actually the only prerequisite for being a life coach. So if you're anything like me, you probably think it's weird that they don't teach financial literacy in schools. It's like, really? I I could be learning about interest rates, but you want me to pick a triangle out of this lineup? Well, that's a little obtuse. To fix it, I've gathered a few friendly experts from Bendigo Bank to help school me and you, the listener, in some financy fundamentals and provide some handy practical tips along the way. As always, this episode contains general information only and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. My parents taught me at a young age that money doesn't grow on trees. That's where babies grow. Then at a slightly less young age, they taught me where babies actually come from. But believe it or not, that's not why I'm about to chat to someone with a master's in psychology. Dee Monaghan is the head of culture and engagement at Bendigo Bank and has a master's in organisational psychology from Monash University. And I'm keen to find out how much our upbringing, our genetics and our psychology affects the way we are with money. What a great question straight out of the gate. So there's a bit of a debate because there's two sides of the coin One is our personality. So what are our inherent characteristics that uh, are largely set um, when we're born? And there's a whole mountain of research to suggest that they're pretty stable. Um, And then, of course, the other side is the environment that we grow up in and how that changes or influences those personality traits that we have. We will all have a tendency or propensity for risk based on our personality. Um, We'll also have a tendency or a propensity for being conscientious and um, that helps to be good with managing to a budget or what have you. But all of that can go out the window if the environment that you are in or that you've grown up in has a stronger influence on you than the nature side. So there are going to be people that by nature of how they are, they are more conscientious, um, they like to plan, they like to have certainty, um, they may not like risk. Now, if they've grown up in an environment where they observed their parents and parents have a huge influence on how you ultimately are with money, if they've observed their parents operating in that same way, then it's going to reinforce that. Both nature and nurture, so personality and environment, have huge influence. Do you think there's, uh, to an extent, people just go into autopilot then? And that's a reason why people don't necessarily take an active uh, role in managing their finances. I think we don't think about it, right? Um, When was the last time you thought about why do I do the things that I do? When do we really take stock and say, what are some of the patterns of behaviour that 
uh, in my life that I really like and I want to maintain and which are the ones that actually aren't very good for me anymore. When it comes to money, we don't do that a lot. We don't think about what are some of the habits that I have that actually are not helping me anymore. And so the first step in, you know, in any kind of behavioural change is, well, you have to do an assessment. What is, what are your patterns? So when was the last time I thought, why do I do the things I do? Probably yesterday uh, when I thought I'd make it to the letterbox and back without being seen. And then I ended up in a 25-minute chat with Pearl, the cat lady from number three, in my undies. Do I regret it? Yes. If I could go back in time and change it, would I? Obviously, still yes. It's almost like the first step is to understand your relationship with money. What are some tips you have to go about doing that? Well, I think feelings have a really important part in our relationship with money. Um, And so I think one of the first steps is to understand how do you feel about your financial decisions? So is does it bring up feelings of um, fear? Does it bring up feelings of guilt that you haven't saved enough or that you've spent too much? Does it bring up feelings of shame or envy or whatever it might be? And understand what those feelings are because our feelings drive our thinking and our thinking drives our behaviour and our behaviour gives us our outcomes. If we know what the emotion is, we can then understand the behaviour and that's what we need to change to get the different result. Ah, this sounds like an old quote I know. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Now seems like a pretty good time to ask the psychology expert how accurate the teachings of Yoda are. Wrong. It's never a good time to ask a psychology expert how accurate the teachings of Yoda are. Neuroscience tells us that you can actually trick your brain into um, feeling differently about something if you physically do something different. And so um, we, we often talk about it's easier to act your way into new thinking than it is to think your way into new behaviour. So, Seren, if I got, are you a left or right-handed person? Right-handed. Right-handed. So if I got you to grab a pen and write your name with your left hand, chances are you could do that and chances are I could read it in, you know, the degree of um, uh, legibility but, I've just tried it and um, I'm not confident <laughs> that, that you could. Um, so if I got you to do it in capitals, we could probably get around it. And but I think my name is now Sven. <laughs> well, the, I like Sven. It's, it's got a certain yeah. ring to it. Yeah. And so if we think about that in the context of how we are with money, we will, for you, you will have tendencies that are your right-hand tendencies. They'll feel easy. They'll be quicker. They have been practised over a long period of time um, and most people can understand what you're doing. But it's not to say that if you needed to, you couldn't write with your left hand. And if you practise something often enough, you become proficient in it and then it becomes like your right hand. You don't think about it anymore. Um, It's easier. It doesn't feel clunky like it does when you write with your left. 
I tuned out to the last half of that question because I was just trying to write my name <laughs> with my left hand. But it was it's a very encouraging sentiment, I think. So it's the the action barrier is a is actually a lot less difficult to overcome than the mental barrier. If you know where you want to be, just try to start acting in the way that will get you there, even if it's going to take you a bit longer for your thought processes to get there. Yeah, I think if we were to put a process behind it, you know, first step is, I guess, a self-evaluation of, you know, what is my emotional relationship with money and what does that do to how I think? Then the next step is, which is what I think you're talking about, is, well, what is my aspiration? So what do I want um, to have here? And then what's getting in the way of that? So which are the behaviours that are not serving me well anymore? And then can I trick my mind into thinking differently by practising a slightly different behaviour that's going to get me a better result? My background absolutely affects my relationship with money. My mother passed away when I was 17 and my dad didn't really know what to do with two teenage daughters and his getting through that was literally just giving us money whenever we asked for it. So it didn't really set us up with the right mentality. I don't fault him for that, that, you know, it was a traumatic time for all of us. But I think it does directly affect my relationship with money. My um, upbringing massively affected the the way that I thought about money. I I still think about money. I was um, a single parent family. I remember money was always, always pretty tight. And it affected me in the sense that it made me go the opposite way. It's made me um, quite frivolous with, with spending. So I grew up um, in a pretty poor household and I really just never want to uh, live like that as an adult. Yeah. My, my parents were immigrants and they instilled this belief that debt should be avoided and debt should be paid off as soon as possible. Um, that, those are the values that I grew up with. From around about 12 or so, I was, I was helping the neighbours, you know, Save, saving money and then I had to save up for my first motorbike, that sort of thing. So I, I, I got the concept of saving. The, the, the upbringing would have affected the spending habits, not so much the saving habits. It was like, don't spend money, but don't necessarily work either because that's, you know, sucking into the man. So <laughs> just don't spend money. <laughs> that was the motto. Now that I'm finally old enough to get, fuck you, Dad, I'm going to spend the money on dumb bullshit. And, um, well, look at me now. Sticking it to my dad, <laughs> buying new shoes. Um, I do love my new shoes. I... I can definitely say my dad has had a huge influence on how I am with money. Uh, he was always sensible. Uh, he was an actuary, and so his job was like all about calculating the risks of things going wrong, and that that naturally makes you quite cautious. It's like someone who plans ahead, you know. Um, in fact, my entire childhood, I can only remember one time that my dad did an impulse buy, and it was a subscription to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Just like a lot of books, so many books. You know, who's got space? Who's got space for all of these books? And they just keep sending more books. And we had to have like two entire rooms dedicated to these books. Well, I'm pretty sure that's why my brother went to boarding school, so we could appropriate his room for these books. And 
and dad had obviously miscalculated the risk of um, pissing off mum. What are money wounds? Money wounds. So most of us have been hurt around money, potentially when we were kids. So it may be that you were denied, you know, getting going to ballet or going to soccer because, you know, mum and dad couldn't afford it um, or it was something that they couldn't, you know, it was something that they couldn't help but they still felt hurt when, you know, you were denied certain things. And so nearly all of us experience a kind of disappointment um, related to money, you know, without realising it, all of these things from our early experiences can haunt us in our later years if we don't take the time to take stock and and understand, am I carrying any of this with me and is it influencing how I'm making decisions today? So, Yeah. I think I have an example of this. I think since my girlfriend's mum is obsessed with Noosa. Right. And I'm like, that. I don't understand that. <laughs> But obviously when she was growing up, it was very desirable to go to Noosa. Yeah. And maybe they weren't allowed to or they, their family couldn't afford to go there or whatever. And now I'm like, what's the Noosa? What's the big deal? Let's go to Spain. You know, everyone's got their own um, idiosyncrasies when it comes to that sort of stuff. Do you have any examples or, or, or um, experiences people have brought you um, in terms of these triggers and experiences? A couple of the classic examples when I was consulting um, prior to to joining the bank, single parents, it's really tough. Um, divorces are tough on, on families and money. Um, illness is tough. You know, there's a myriad of um, experiences that people have as well as um, being single. If, you know, you... Um, when you're single, you have to have a, a different view of money because you're not in a partnership. So your appetite for risk may be quite different. And if you grew up, um, you know, in a, in a single parent household, you will have seen some of the struggles. So that will, will carry over. So when I'm going to assess my own relationship with money, is it worth also going back and thinking, you know, how did my parents behave and how were they emotionally affected by money? Absolutely. What was it like when you were growing up and in your family? Uh, and what was um, what was your relationship with money? And are you going to make a choice to repeat it? Or are you going to make a choice to reject it? We either consciously say, um, what I saw in my family is what I want to repeat because it worked and, you know, it aligns to how I want to be and my aspiration and my view of self, or we reject it because we don't want to repeat the sins of the father or, you know, the sins of the past. Okay, wow. Why do I suddenly feel like Tony Soprano over here? Uh, It's actually quite intense trying to unpick all this psychological stuff just to understand the way we are with money. But it makes so much sense that our experience is growing up totally inform who we are today so uh in terms of habits that are like unconscious do you have any tips on how to unearth those if you've got bad spending habits or bad money habits that you're just unaware of do you have any how do you go about identifying those 
I think deep down we all know what um, some of our, our bad habits might be. Look at the numbers, right? So the numbers won't lie. So if you look at where you spend your money, um, what types of things are you spending it on, what's going on in your life when you spend that money, um, and then also looking at your habits against what your desire is. So if, if your habit, sorry, if your desire is that you want to be better at saving, for example, so you want to have, um, you know, more money in savings or a proportion of your, your wage in savings every month and you're not achieving that outcome, then you need to look at, well, what's getting in the way of that? What am I spending my money on? When am I spending it on those things? And what is the trigger? So is it self-soothing in terms of I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty crappy about the world right now and I'm going to go on a Kmart binge to make myself feel better and buy a whole bunch of stuff that I don't need but I can't help myself with because Kmart are super smart in their uh, marketing. I mean, we definitely have different ideas of what constitutes self-soothing. Uh, uh, me personally, more of an Aldi guy. What are some of the um, the patterns that exist for you that you can then go, hang on a minute, I don't think this is super useful. It might be Uber Eats, right? So you might start off that, you know, okay, we'll do Uber Eats on a Friday, end of the week, and then you find yourself doing Uber Eats on a Thursday and a Tuesday. And before you know it, you're spending 150, 200, whatever it might be a week. And so it's unpacking where is the behavior and what's the trigger for that behavior? Because once you identify it, you can put something in its place, but you need to set some quite doable habits and putting a few on top of each other, make it easier to achieve. I'd heard the concept of habit stacking bandied about before. So I asked Dee, what does that even mean? So for example, um, if you want to lose weight, you probably need to do some exercise. And so you might set your alarm half an hour earlier than you would in any given day. Now, if you're the queen of snooze like I am, that may not be enough of a habit. You might need to stack another habit um, in its place. So you might need to then set another alarm that's out of reach that requires you to move to turn it off. You may then set that alarm um, in another room and put your gym bag on the floor at, that requires you to walk over the gym bag in order to turn the second alarm off to hit snooze. So the same is true with money. If we take savings as an example, um, what's the, the first easy thing that you can do? It might be um, allocating a certain proportion of your um, uh, fortnightly or monthly pay into an account that you can't touch without physically going into a branch. So it's thinking about what are the behaviours that are not working and how can I replace them with habits that are going to get me closer to my goal. Rewiring your brain to change a habit isn't as tough as it sounds. And while some habits are difficult to break, the good news is that you can change them if you understand the triggers for that behaviour. Exercise psychologists tell us it takes three weeks to change a lazy mindset into an exercise machine, but it means taking every opportunity to actively shift lazy habits within that time. When you're constantly replacing the habit, you're tricking your brain into releasing dopamine for this new, healthier habit. 
Essentially, we're just like more advanced dogs. You just need to find the high value treat that works for you. For me, it's pig's ears. The same process applies for changing your spending habits. Every time you choose to save for a long-term goal over splurging, your brain learns that saving is good. When it comes to goal setting, do you think there's uh, such a thing as if you set the goals to end up setting yourself up for fail and it maybe reinforces the, the bad relationship? Absolutely. I think that's true in all facets of life, whether or not it's money, work, health, Goals need to be realistic. They need to be um, achievable. If we set a realistic goal and we're getting closer to achieving it, we feel good about that rather than feeling like I'm actually never going to get here, so I'm going to give up. It keeps coming back to you. You need to think about what realistically your goals are and how you define success. I think that it's the onus is on us as individuals or as family units or whatever makes sense to determine what is my vision of success. And so if as a society we can start to be a bit braver in defining what good looks like for us, then I absolutely think we'd get closer to that. But I absolutely think it's possible and and I do think it's healthy. Um, but there's a lot that's mixed up in it, right? You know, 2020 has turned so many things on its head. I think we will see people making different choices because we've just been in this huge experiment for nine months um, where we've been forced to change the way that we behave. And for a lot of people, they're seeing different outcomes. Um, You know, when you remove habits that you may not even have been conscious about, that you do, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, well, I'm getting a different outcome. Maybe I'll now be more conscious about the habits and the outcomes that I want for me and my family. Young people get a bit of sledging for living too in the moment and being less financially savvy than previous generations. After all, we're the generation who coined acronyms like YOLO and GOOM. That one stands for get out of my bath and... I intend to use it when I have a place with a bar. But on the flip side, young people today are dealing with the most volatile, rapidly changing economic landscape in history. Spending money on housing might be down by 16% from previous generations, but that's mainly due to inflated house prices. Everyone knows that Pop bought his house for a pouch of ox and a gumball in 1966. Spending on alcohol and cigarettes is lower than previous generations, but that seems to get a lot less attention. Young people today are also turning away from credit and budgeting more than any other generation, with a healthy 80% working off a weekly budget, far higher than any other generational demographic. So are we too hard on ourselves? For better or for worse, I I am pretty good with my money. Um, too responsible for my own good to the point where, you know, my partner has to, like, force me to buy something for myself, which has its own sort of drawbacks because it means you're not really enjoying your life if you're just constantly squirrelling away money and not spending it even when you can. But there's just this fear of spending money that uh, was instilled into me very young. And so I have a lot of guilt buying stuff for myself or investing in my own artistic projects 
I can't imagine a life where I'm going to be able to afford to do everything that's required to live um, beyond just myself. I, the idea of having kids, the idea of having a house. I worry so much about the future and, you know, like I just don't see how I will ever earn enough to be able to start hitting any of those kind of like benchmarks and milestones. Sometimes I'm a bit overwhelmed and paralyzed about like, so how do I change this and start making moves and better strides to what I'm trying to accomplish? I'm married and even just between myself and my husband, our income, you know, like we're living comfortably now, but I know we're probably not saving as much as we need to. Like, I think we have both come to accept the idea that we probably won't own a home. And I mean, we personally at this point in our lives don't anticipate having children, but even if we did, just like couldn't even fathom how much that would add to our current lifestyle. Obviously, you can work and build money and wealth, but I think in my mind, um, it's it's very much also a class thing. And if you come from money, um, there's a, a financial literacy and a financial expertise that's kind of like passed down. It, it just feels all a bit hopeless. Um, just feel really stuck. Do you think that there is a strong correlation between mental health and financial health? Are they intertwined? I think they're hugely intertwined. If we were to take a poll of most people across Australia today and ask them, you know, what's what's your biggest fear at the moment, um, particularly in a COVID world, I think a, a great many of them would say um, they have a fear around money and um, the the security that comes with that. And so when you have something in our society that contributes to people's fear or people's security or people's identity and sense of self, then it's not a big leap to think that a shake-up in that would have an impact in your well-being or mental health. And and if you realise that you have large fears relating to money, then it's very much going to be connected to your well-being because it's going to be connected to sources of your anxiety. So much of our society is tied up in um, our relationship with money at the moment and I think um, that's probably not a great thing and and maybe COVID will help to to reset that a little bit, maybe. In your experience, do you think people struggle to open up about money more than other issues that they have in their life? Like would you say it's one of the hardest things people find to talk about? I would always advise uh, kind of some of the first conversations that at least couples have because if you don't understand where you stand with money and um, what your relationship with it is, it it can be a source of conflict. Um, And because for some, traditionally, it may be difficult to have those conversations, the earlier you have them, the better. So would you say like a conversation should go beyond just how you plan to save and how you plan to spend, but also trying to understand each other's history with money? So you're going to I think this is crazy. When I went on my second date with my husband, um, I got him to do a value survey um, 
where we both did a survey over dinner in terms of what were our most important values. Um, And it was a bit of a joke at the time, but we still um, laugh about it because it's really important that you know where what is important to someone else and how different that might be for you. If you don't value money, which for some people they they won't, um, and your partner really does, then you're going to have to meet somewhere where um, in the middle or meet somewhere where there's not going to be conflict. But you can't do that if you don't know. And so you have to understand what is important in terms of um, their aspirations and their goals, but what do they value as a person? Um, And so if they value security, that's going to drive decisions. And if you value gregariousness and fun and um, spontaneity, that's going to be very different to someone who values security. So how are you going to work through that and make financial decisions together when your your come from is quite different. Yeah, awesome. Can you can you send me that survey? Yeah, sure, like absolutely. This, <laughs> kudos to you for making it through to all the way to marriage well, after this that. This is what happens when you um you go on a date with a psychologist, I think. <laughs> yeah, wow. My my girlfriend and I have decided that she's the breadwinner and I will occasionally win a meat tray. <laughs> solid solid decision there. All right, so we've got carbs and protein covered, but that's hardly a balanced diet. My girlfriend actually suggested polyamory because as a thruple, we could also tick off roughage. Anyway, speaking of things that are affecting my mental health. The solutions that we can use to tackle mental health issues in other facets of our life, are they broadly the same as when it comes to the context of money? Is this is it all kind of intertwined? Yeah, I, the process is not dissimilar. So if you were to go see a psychologist about a fear of flying or a fear of public speaking or whatever it might be, I don't think it's out of the ordinary to have that same conversation with the counsellor or psychologist around your relationship with money, if you feel that it is truly getting in the way of you having the goals that you want in life. Saying something out loud is a hugely powerful way of quietening the noise in in, in one's head. So I think that's um, an important thing. And, of course, talking to um, uh, financial services experts to say, look, I'm not able to get to my goal, I'm stuck and here are some of the habits that I've established, you know, what what can you advise? Do you think a good way to, to wrap it up or to summarise it, Dee, is to say that no matter where you are in terms of your relationship with money and your finances, it's not doom and gloom and you can take control and you have the choice to empower yourself And sometimes it's as simple as just like starting small and taking a look at like, you know, what your situation is and where are the small things that you can start to change now. And as you make those changes, you'll start to feel more empowered and that's when you can then start to gradually rein in control. Absolutely. I mean, this 
topic by its very nature can feel quite heavy and, you know, I need to go do all this psychoanalysis on myself and I need to, you know, work out my childhood and what am I scared of? Like this all feels, you know, um, may feel quite heavy, but you're right. It's just down to simple choices that you make in any given day that uh, make life easier for you. And, and we all have the, the power to do that and they don't have to be big things. They don't have to be hard things. Um, but I guess the message is pick at least one thing and one thing that's going to have a disproportionate amount of, of impact on what you're trying to achieve and do that one thing really well. Um, and that, that's got to feel a bit easier than, you know, trying to solve it all. Uh, because chances are you probably won't solve it all. We've all had a different upbringing around money. We've all got a different relationship with money. But as Dee points out, the good news is that no matter what your history is, anyone can start taking control right now. The trick? Well, just remember that your actions around money can actually lead the way for your thoughts and beliefs to follow. So... Starting today, think about small changes you can make, new habits you can train yourself to do, and soon you'll feel more empowered and already like you're in more control. And um, how much do I owe you for this session? <laughs> um, let's consider this one um, on the house. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, that, that means that I still have $20 to spend, so... What do you think I should spend my last 20 bucks on? What should you spend your last 20 bucks on? I would download a good values questionnaire to do with your partner. Okay, awesome. <laughs> well, it looks like I'm going to give you that 20 bucks after all. That's what, um, I thought you were going to say Valium then. <laughs> so huge thanks to Dee and all of our contributors. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Bendigo Bank Official. Or tweet us at Bendigo Bank. Check out our other great episodes on everything from a beginner's guide to investing to how to actually buy a house to how to survive COVID. Well, financially anyway. You can find out more about everything we've spoken about today at bendigobank.com.au forward slash podcast. A quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the relevant individual do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank Group. The information contained is current as at November 2020 and is subject to change without notice. Before making any investment or financial decision, you should seek independent advice and read the appropriate disclosure documents. This podcast was created for Bendigo Bank by Subversus and written and produced by Tanya Barbic, Jason Sukadana and me, Seren Jayamana. Also produced by Holly Jane and junior produced and researched by Tom Atkinson. All recording and post-production by Versus Studio.